My name is Bill, uh, teaching pastor here at Bethel Christian Church, and I am glad that we're all gathered again to see what God wants to show us in His Word. So, again, let's go to prayer. Father, there's a lot weighing in on us, a lot of the weak, a lot of ourselves, a lot of unresolved business within and without. But I pray, Lord, in Your in your grace, that you would grant us the peace and the space to focus not on me and what I'm saying, but on you, your word, your spirit, uh, what each of us needs, the next steps, the transactions that you want to direct to our hearts. Uh, we give you ourselves. Um, thank you for uh, doing likewise so completely. In Christ's name we pray. We have been working through the Gospel of John, and uh, this is uh, a book with the simplest Greek of, of the entire New Testament. Really easy to understand. Uh, English translation, you know, we saw in, in 11 there could have been, a, you know, some better work with Jesus being worked up. But by and large, pretty simple translation, pretty easy to understand. But the depth of theology, the, the tracing the, like a blind person trying to, to feel the face of someone to see what they look like, where John traces in very intimate detail the contours of the face of the living God in our lives and where we end, where he begins, and, and vice versa. And so this is a book that goes wide, that goes deep, that, that basically I'm trying to explain why we had to turn to Hubson and we're, we're getting down here in John. So... Uh, we're not going anywhere. This is the second part of the book uh, with that break that we looked at, the first 11 chapters, and then there's this break of the necessary death, that what Jesus was saying is not just rearranging our lives, but letting go completely and the need to do so. And Jesus setting the example first and foremost. So when he says, come follow me, uh, he means to death. He means to new life. Uh, when he says a servant's not above his master and he puts the standard at cleaning um, donkey poop off a disciple's toes, that sets the standard for us and our expectations of this life, what we let go of to lay hold of real life. And so just having shocked and shocked and shocked the disciples on, this is my expectation of the Christian life, of following God, and are you kidding me, God, it really means this? I thought I could phone it in. I thought I could give them a part of my life. I thought I could get fire insurance. And now the disciples are finding that Christ's love goes so much deeper than conformity or performance or showing up or faithfulness. It goes to surrender. It goes to being known. It goes to being loved. And so this is really where we're getting into the gospel, sanding the calluses off of our heart, exposing who we really are and how our lives are really lived. So we're now um, in the second part of John chapter 13, and we're going to look at who we are instead. For those who he foreknew he loved, but foreknown is not just knowledge, it's relational. And so Romans sets this out that he fell in love with us before the foundations of the world. I'm not God. I'm not outside of time. I have no idea how all this works together. It's way beyond us. But enough to say our stories, how we matter to God, goes far more than what the sum total of what we've experienced up to this point. God sees so much more, and he's in, and he loves us. That's who we are. That's who he made us to be. That's how he purposed us. Those are the good works before the foundations, the hand and glove fit that, that God presented for us, the life that he made, how he could best bring out what is good and right and unique and special. Each of us as an image bearer has a way to glorify God in ways no one else can, ever, was able to, ever will be able to. We're necessary. We're missed. 
But yet, how we discover life, born into a fallen world in a fallen body, uh, we learn loss and grief and disappointment. We learn to hold up. We learn to not reveal who we are because we get hurt. We learn intimacy uh, and vulnerability uh, are, are not trustworthy commodities in this world. And so with the hits, with the hurts, with the hates, we close up, we shrink in, we become less than who we are. With other people's expectations or how perhaps even uh, God's expectations are mediated through family, through church, through relationships, we have a sense of expectation. This is how I really ought to be. This is how it's safe to be. This is how I can be in control. This is how I can protect. This is how I can forge my way ahead. And each of us learns to be a different kind of person than God intended. This is a very, very profitable movie trope that that is mined every year. And and, and it works out many different ways. You have somebody who lived a certain kind of life, the driving business executive, and it's about fame and accomplishment and achievement and and money, and then they, they inherit, uh, they have to, they adopt a child, or um, they, a stray puppy comes along, or um, they, they fall for an unexpected person, they have a relationship, and they have to learn to be somebody else. They discover through having to let go of the control and who they learn to be and mastered, they're somebody else. Or sometimes they flip it around, that it's this normal life and everybody sees this person a certain way and then you find out they're really a sleeper agent, they're a spy, they haven't been this person all along. And then they're conflicted, who am I? I, I, I've seen the value of this wonderful capitalist society, but Mother Russia is calling me for revolution and and I'm torn and who can I be? And, And so there's these tropes of this is who I present, but this is who I really am. And, and it can be flipped around a lot. British actor Gary Oldman, do, do, do you know who I'm talking about? Genius, love this guy. Uh, he is really adept at putting on different um, accents, and if you didn't know he was British, if you saw him playing an American, you think, oh, goodness, he's American. Hugh Laurie, he's American, right? House, he's British. Um, and he's so good at accents, it messed him up. Now, in in the United States, we have about five or six basic accents because we developed as a very mobile society and and a melting pot. And so you have the South that goes from drawl to twang as you kind of move west across. You have the North Atlantic seaboard where you packed a car not far from the yard. Got to get to LaGuardia. And and then you have kind of this this Midwestern um, kind of I don't know. My mom's from there. I'll just leave it at that. And it's a really cute way. It's a really cute way of talking, but, but we, we give a lot of grief over it. And then there's the, the kind of the Pacific West Coast, which is really a very neutral accent. Uh, my kids are, are angry that, that I, I moved them from Russia, where they would have had a cool accent, or, or Finland, or Reno even, um, because there's no accent here. I go, everyone has an accent. Well, in England, because England for a thousand years developed not as a mobile society, but where you were born is where you died. And you didn't go more than about 10 miles for the longest time. So accents were really, really distinct and really strong. And you could tell not just where somebody was by how they spoke, but you could tell how much money they made, how much education they had, and what part of the city that they were living in from their accent. That's how distinct British accents have developed. So you would think Gary Oldman a genius actor who had a very distinct accent. When he opened his mouth and his native broke, everybody knew they could tell basically a street address. 
because it was just so obvious. Well, he, having such uh, an accent, and he had to work so hard to lose it, what happened from being this chameleon going from role to role to role to role, he forgot what his native accent was. For the life of him, he couldn't remember. And he went home, and he's talking with family and friends, and he's trying to imitate the accent, and it sounded foreign to him. And he did not know. He had spent so much time being other people, he forgot who he was. And he actually, the language coaches that he used, the accent coaches that movies employ, now that's, that's a sick paying job if there ever was one. Um, they, they train actors to get the right accent. He had to hire these experts to reverse engineer his native accent and teach him to speak like he used to speak. And he, he had to go around it backwards. Who he was instead became so prevalent to him and he put so much effort into being other people, he forgot who he really was. And I think this tendency, this realization how we are as people, we do this no place better than here in church. And it goes far beyond the, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. And it goes far beyond the, um, you know, keeping up appearances and expectations. Because it's not just what the people immediately around here expect. It's what God expects. It's what we grew up to expect of ourselves. And I think we spend so much time worried about who we are being to others. We become who we are instead. Rather than the one that God fell in love with the one that God redeemed, the one that God has all the grace, all the mercy, all the forgiveness for. And, and we have this phantom project, projection that we have to prop up through lots of effort. Why would I be talking about this in John chapter 13? I'm not. Jesus is. So we got to go with the text and we got to stay there. What we're going to look at today is what's the difference between a Judas and a Peter? And there is no way we're going to tease that out because on the surface, there are so many more similarities. Even in terms of what they did, Peter technically probably had a lot more liability than Judas. But one is a betrayal, one is a denial. One is unto death and one is unto life. One of them uh, was just a highway to hell and the other one was a U-turn and, and a bumpy one, but a glorious one. And so Jesus is going to mention both players here. And it's a time of intimacy and a time of vulnerability. And he's laying out here, it's much worse than you think. You're all worried about where are you going to go, Jesus, and what about me? And Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm worried more so about what about you and for these reasons. So we're going to get a glimpse of Jesus' heart. But the only way we're going to be able to answer that question at the end of this, um, what's the difference between a Judas and a Peter, is when we lay hold of who we are instead. So be clear as we walk through it. Let's go to the text, starting with verse 18. John 13, uh, verse 18. Um, all the, um, this is Judas. I had to go with the Gibsonian rendering. Um, and this is Peter, uh, which is funny because they didn't have scissors back then. How did they get their beard so short? But whatever. Um, all the pictures that I looked in art of Judas, they were so racist. I couldn't use any of them. It was terrible. That Even trying to find how do we picture Judas now, it was like already. I mean, he had tentacles and horns. And I mean, how do people not see this? When um, he's just a dude. And all the disciples, sure, John has the benefit of hindsight. We're saying, oh, yeah, he was a thief. I knew it all along. Oh, yeah, yeah, he used to pilfer from the money box. Oh, yeah, Judas was always saying this. Hey, shut up, John. You had no idea who Jesus was talking about when he said it. In fact, Jesus showed you who it was, and you still didn't get it. And so, John, this must have seriously bugged him. 
Like this must have really, he took this personally. You did this to the Lord because he can't get over it. He keeps bringing it up in his gospel. So this is a big one for John. And uh, the difference between a Judas and a Peter has nothing to do with the circumstances. Okay, let's get to the text. So we just said Jesus was just doing the, the, the washing of the feet. And then he said, you call me Lord, you call me master, you call me rabbi, actually. And, and true, such I am. I have left an example for you that you should do the same, serve one another, and you will be blessed if you do these things. That was verse 17. Verse 18. I'm not referring to all of you that you'll be blessed if you do these things. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. Some of your other translations might have raised his heel against me. What's that? And tap dance on my food. It's a metaphor of a horse that's kind of, you know, bad horse. He's going to raise his foot. He's getting ready to kick. That's the metaphor here. And so what should be intimacy is really threat and danger. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. You will believe God. Very truly, I tell you, guys, listen up. This is serious. That very truly translates amen. So he's saying, pay attention. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. So he singles somebody out. And he'd mentioned this before. When he was washing the feet, and Peter said, oh, you, can't, can't, you know, it's a pride thing. You, you, can't, don't wash my feet. And he goes on to explain, and he says, you are clean, the one who has been saved. The one who has been saved, completely clean, cleansed of their sin, does not need to bathe again. Does not need to bathe again. You know, I've I've gone to some churches where you can repent and and get saved again every Sunday. Theologically, that's just not correct. But emotionally, that's pretty cool because you have a bad week. And wouldn't you just like a do-over? Wouldn't you like a do-over? Guess what? Forgiveness is a do-over. It doesn't have to be the whole shebang all over again and a clean slate because a clean slate's in Christ. It's laying a hold of that through forgiveness. And so that's what he was talking about Peter, but he mentions not all of you are clean, referring to Judas. And now he brings it up again and he says, you'll be blessed if you do these things, but not all of you. So what Jesus is saying right now is it's not the thing. It's not the act. You can serve and be gracious and give all your money to the poor and and just be the most Christian person, but just doing the thing profits you nothing. Paul said this, if I speak with the tongues of angels but have not love, if I give my body to be burned but have not love, I am nothing, I'm just noise, I'm smoking protein, nothing else. And so love is the, 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 um, the determining factor. And so he said those that are in, those that have been graced, those that are forgiven, that have relationship, this is an outpouring relationship. You see me serve, you serve. You see me love, you love. You see me forgive, you forgive. But the one that doesn't have the relationships, it's about them. It's about justifying. I'm doing this so others will see me. I'm doing this so you'll owe me. I'm doing this, God, because you owe me and I earn this and I deserve it. And so he's saying you will not be blessed just by doing the thing. You're only blessed when in relationship the thing is an outworking of that relationship. Gives reality to our words. I say I love you. So what? I show you I love you. That's great. Saying it, that's easy. The devil has great theology. Doesn't profit him much because he doesn't put it into practice. Okay, the demons know that God is one and they shudder. Doesn't, knowing the right things doesn't help us. It just brings us under judgment. It's in doing them. But it's not just doing them. It's doing them from relationship. Is it a relationship with Christ or my own relationship? 
So he says, you'll be blessed, but not all of you. The disconnected one, it, it profits you nothing. And so it's a clear warning to the betrayer. He's saying it here. Judas, Judas, go back. There's a sign. Stop. Turn around. Turn around. To the very end. He knew from the beginning his heart what he was going to do. And he still holds out mercy and grace. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. There's that translation again. Ah, should have been Bible translator. The, um, this was the Lazarus, uh, John 11, where it said, and Jesus, twice it uses this, and then in between the Jesus wept sandwich. He was troubled in spirit. Jesus wept. He was troubled in spirit. And it's like, he's like, Lazarus, bummer. This is the one where he was so enraged. He was like snorting like a horse. Like he was just so... So completely moved. This rocked his world. This was important. He was so worked up. He was so troubled. Um, And he wasn't looking at Gethsemane. He wasn't looking at the cup of wrath. He wasn't looking at your sin and my sin and the real price and the real cost for our relationship. He he was looking at his own hurt and betrayal. This cost him. He knew it was going to happen, and it still hurt him. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus, and he still grieved the death. Very truly, I tell you, listen up, y'all, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss, John, to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple who Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, you can picture the scene. He's deeply troubled in spirit. This is an understatement. This is Jesus. This is the Last Supper, uh, the, the, the Passover meal, and they'd celebrated that. The very place where they're supposed to wash their hands and say, hey, God, look, we're clean, not like those Gentiles. Blessed is the one who will ascend the holy hill. And who can do that? The one with holy hands. Psalm 24, and we read this, and look, God, we're clean. And rather than them cleaning themselves and showing they earn it before God, Jesus strips, puts on a towel of a slave, and cleans dirty toenails. Rather than being separated from the world and and earning our place before God, God wants his disciples to roll up their sleeves and get dirty in serving others. So already they're reeling. And now he's worked up again, and he's like he had just gotten dressed, and they're freaking out, and he just said, I left you an example. And he's just like shaking, just... I am so worked up right now. They're like, whoa. Jesus, man, this guy is like seriously worked up. I mean, this is a carpenter tendon showing on his forearm worked up. And so Simon Peter's like, uh, John, dude, John, ask the Messiah, who is it? No, I didn't say anything. John, he passed us a note. Bartholomew, pass it to Thaddeus, Thaddeus, pass it around. And then, John, and so it said literally falling upward, which means he lays back. So falling upward onto Jesus. John does a cool thing here, leaning back against Jesus. Where he says it is, he says literally, in the bosom of Jesus. How did chapter 1 go? No one has seen the invisible God, but he is in the bosom of the Father. And he has explained the Father to us. So there's this beautiful incarnational scene here in the same way that John is just so in the bosom, so at rest, so at comfort that he leans back and he just asks him. 
Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. What he's referring to is what's typically referred to as the sop in the Passover meal. Now, the sop is, it was, it's unleavened bread, and it's this roasted lamb and, with herbs and different things. And the, the way the Passover was celebrated then, very different than, than these days. But what they would do is they'd divide up the bread, and they, they'd eat half of it with the meal. And the very last bit, they'd get all the drippings and the juice and the sauce and all the stuff your doctor told you not to do right and that thing is just like this is a pretty bitter meal right but this is like the oh the sweet part this is the stuff that your dog will kill you for right um and the sop is given to the best friend the sop is given to the most beloved person in the meal and so uh there were the way people would recline normally at a table you'd kind of just sit like this you know, and you'd eat. But on, on meals, fellowship meals, Passover meals, you do this reclining thing where you're reclining like this and, and you're, you're, you're serving one another and you feed one another. So John would have been leaning back like this. Ah, who is it, Lord? And he's doing this. Judas is on the left side. Now, unlike rulership in the ancient world where he ascended to the right hand of the Father because right hand is power and might and rule, that's what it's referring to. In the fellowship time, it was the left-hand guest that had even more honor than the right-hand guest. So John, the beloved disciple, the disciple that Jesus loved, was on the right hand. But on the left hand, with even more honor, was Judas. Jesus, knowing what Judas was going to do, still gave him the best place. And then he gives him the sop. And he gave him this saying, you are my friend. I'm giving you the best. You are my honored guest, Judas. I know your heart. And so even to the end, last week it said having loved them to the end, and it doesn't mean to the end of his life. It uses this word goal. Having loved them to the utmost he was able to, that he purposed himself to, and we see it being worked out here. Even to the very end, knowing betrayal, the bitterness of the herbs, the bitterness of the betrayal, giving Judas the sop. And so he took it. And again, um, Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. This is a paraphrase. A better thing would be as soon as he took the bread, um, Satan poisoned his mind. Uh, He was resolved in what he had been planning to do. Uh, He gave, um, he purposed himself into Satan's plan. It isn't that Satan's in the bread. Man, that wasn't, talk about stealth, right? Talk about Satanception. Man, is Satan in the unleavened bread? He smuggled himself into the Passover meal. Jesus never saw it coming. I, I thought for sure he'd be in the lamb. That's the obvious place to go. Or the yeast, the leaven. We got rid of leaven. There's no Satan here. And he was in the bread and I gave it to Judas. And who saw that? That's animism. That's not the Bible. That's animism. There's a demon in this. And we have to be afraid. And if you take this doll or you take this thing, you touch it. Yahweh's God over all. Everything else is the Elohim, a thing of nothingness. We're on the winning side. And so that's a better way of understanding that. Even with the love, even with the grace, even with the forgiveness, even seeing Jesus at his most gracious, Judas at his most exposed, rather than even turning to Christ, he fully hardened his heart and was resolved to do what he planned on doing. And then John, as this director that I told you about, he closes it, he says, and he went out and it was night. You get the spiritual connotation. He went out, then it was night. Now, right in the middle of this, he's worked up. He doesn't know what to do. He does this teaching on love. He just shifts gears right in the middle of this. A new command I give you. Bam, the door just shut. Judas is out. The gears are in motion. He's going to be betrayed. His friend just tore his heart out. 
And he goes on to teach a new command I give you. In the ashes of this failed relationship, he says, love one another. Having love to the utmost. Love one another as I have loved you. Serving you, loving you, forgiving you, being with you, bearing with you, walking with you, staying with you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples by the doctrine that you hold. By your protectionism from the world. By how cool and hip your church is. By the amount of worship that you have. By the type of worship that you have. By your missions budget. All the markers that we look at for church and church health aren't on Jesus' list at all. Not one of them. These are cultural things. We need to ask these questions. We need to incarnate ourselves in a culture. Absolutely. But Jesus' list is simply this. As you love others, it gives evidence to me in this world. As you don't, it gives evidence I'm not here. Straight up. So we are his best witness and his worst witness. And we're plan A and there is no plan B. So it is on a new command. Now we're going to talk about this a lot more. Uh, chapter 15 from verse 8 uh, talks about this loving one another and what does this mean and what does it not mean and the one who keeps my commandments and there's abiding in love. So there's a lot more traction. We're going to skip over this and uh, continue, continue with the bad news. So he starts to share about this and then he says, hey, the reason I'm laying it down like this is because I'm leaving now. And he starts to talk about that and Peter's like in the background going, me, me, my turn. The other loud mouth has left. I get to talk now. And uh, so Peter interrupts him, and he says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, before daybreak, you will disown me three times. Three times, not once, not twice, three times. In other words, it's not an accident, it's not happenstance, it's not circumstance, it's enemy action. And he lays it out there, and then there's the rest of the story. We have the story of the betrayal of Judas who goes out, 30 pieces of silver, uh, justified in his own mind. And then we have Peter who went out, uh, was very bold, drew a sword, wasn't a soldier, missed, wanted to split Malchus down the middle, missed, took an ear off, um, went about it the wrong way. And so we have this bold, the one guy that at least tried to lay down his life, that tried to fight for him. My master's going down, we're going to back to back and, you know, they'll take us out. But then in the garden, and he's cold and he's scared and the master and people are getting violent and people are getting beaten and Jesus is getting spit at and abused. And now a slave girl confronts him on his accent, packing fast in the cat in the yard. Just kidding. Um, you guys, sorry. Um, the, um, and he denies it. And then the slave girl comes up again, the lowest in the society, a slave, a girl, a child, no value, nothing in society, invisible. And he swears, he drops an F-bomb, he curses, he gives oaths, I swear I don't, blankety-blank, know the guy. And he, I mean, he's, he's, deni- he's not just saying, no, 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 I don't know what you mean. Well, what do you mean to really know somebody? Psychologists say you have to know somebody 14 years, and I've only known him three, so technically I don't know him. He doesn't avoid it, I mean, he's just there. And then he denies him again, the rooster crows, and he looks across the courtyard, and Jesus gives him a piercing, just a look. And he went out and he wept. Judas saw what he did, and he went out and wept. Judas ended it. Judas committed suicide. And uh, Peter didn't. Peter left it all, but came back. So what's the difference between a Judas and a Peter? I think the difference is simply the posture and attitude of the heart. Because on the outside, they were very much the same. 
They were 12 disciples all chosen by Jesus. They spent the same amount of time with Christ. But yet, Peter actually spent more time with Christ. He saw more miracles. The healing of Jairus' daughter. The, the, um, the transfiguration. It was Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, and bringing him apart. Peter has all the interaction with Christ. So Peter knew more, saw further. Peter's more culpable of knowing who Christ is. Judas saw less. But that's not the difference. They saw the miracles. They prayed. They had the same Hebrew background, the same understanding of Scripture, the same hopes and dreams. That's the same, not the difference. Judas Iscariot, a lot of people would see his name being from this town of called Kiriot, and it could be, it could be. I think a better translation of the name is actually Judas Isikari. Uh, the Sikari were a group of assassins. Sika is a blade in, in Latin, and, and so it's like we get scythe, like the grim, grim reaper. Well, a sikari is like a little blade, and it was a dagger, especially a sa- assassin's dagger. And so it was sort of like the, the French resistance in the Nazi Germany, you know, Vichy uh, France, where, where it was, um, you know, there's a phone call, and some of the French patrons leave the outdoor cafe, and a car drives up, and they machine gun the Nazis at the table and drive away sort of thing. That's what the sikari were doing. They were zealous Jews that wanted the Romans out. Out, and what they would do is any Jewish official that was compromising with the Romans in a, in a, um, a festive gathering, everybody's got their, their, their togas and their, their garments and their robes, and the secret would carry these daggers, and they'd get close to the person, and they'd be like, you know, prison ship and run away, and they'd die, and everyone would know, ah, the secret struck again. Well, we have one of the disciples is Simon the Zealot, and as we looked at before, the better translation is Simon the Terrorist. The Zealots were um, Al-Qaeda. The zealots were Al-Qaeda, and, and that's who Jesus recruited from. And so the Simon the Zealot, his thing was, I see you as the Messiah because you're going to be the powerful ruler that kicks the Romans out. I want to get in on that, and so I'm all in. Well, if that's the case, and if Judas was really part of the Sikari, then the Sikari would be the IS of the occupation. And yet Jesus chose freely from all of these groups, from, from longshoremen with Tourette's, from, uh, you know, from these, these country bumpkins in the hills, for a, a tax collector who was the worst corroborator ever, probably had him bunk with Levi or with um, uh, one of these terrorists, right? Uh, work out their differences. If that's the case, then the world that Judas came from was black and white. It was black and white. There was right and wrong. There is one God, one way to do it, one reading of scripture. It's my way. This is the way to do it. God has said this. Um, I understand it that way. It's faith. That's the end of it. And the ends justify the means. And so Judas was coming to this as this is the right way to do this. And so long as it goes toward my ends, I'm all in. But as soon as it starts to deviate out, God started asking more. And it was surrender. And it was forgiveness. John the Baptist was a salt of the earth guy. And he was ready to take names. He's like, the Messiah is coming and lay every path every mountain shall be laid low and every valley raised up and basically get your stuff in gear because the Messiah is coming. But then when he didn't start, you know, lopping heads off and John's in prison, he says, are you really the one or should we expect somebody else? Which is strange because God said, dude, this is the Messiah. Yet he doubts because he didn't meet his expectations. And so this deviation of, wait a minute, who is this guy? You're not doing it God's way. This isn't the way I read scripture. This isn't my role. And so with Judas, it was a sense of um, as long as it went in the direction that he wanted to go, he was good with it. But as soon as Jesus didn't fulfill his plan, his reading of history, he parted company. The attitude and disposition of the heart was control, not surrender. And that was the difference between the two. 
Who is in charge and what's the basis for our being good? My acts are Christ's. Jesus spent most of his time teaching and warning his followers against becoming a Pharisee. Chapter 7, the Pharisees were seeking to kill Jesus. They sent guards to arrest him, and they tried to trap him each day with a question. And then later in chapter 7, things come to a head with healing on the Sabbath. Three healings already contested, and they keep bringing it up, and they want to turn the crowd against him. Chapter 8, a woman caught in adultery was brought in by the Pharisees to trap Jesus. They didn't care about justice. They didn't even care about the law. They wanted to um, trap Jesus. Um, There was an altercation later in chapter 8 with the Pharisees regarding how to read the Bible, regarding how to understand history, regarding who is God, regarding the ministry uh, in, in whole, regarding interpretation, regarding tradition. They had misunderstood everything. And their only recourse was to say, you have a demon. You have a demon, Jesus. And as soon as he laid out who he was, they tried to kill him. They picked up stones. Mob rule. Chapter 9, there was the man physically blind who could spiritually see God in greater and greater revelation, just like his healing. And then we have the sighted Pharisees who couldn't even see God standing in front of them. Chapter 10, we have the teaching about the good shepherd in the gate. How does verse 1 begin? And to the Pharisees, he directed this teaching. And he talks about the good shepherd. He talks about the gate. talks about laying his life down for the sheep because none of them were. Remember that verse we looked at in Ezekiel 30. Uh, Chapter 34, my shepherds have abandoned my people. I will raise up the true shepherd. And that's the background. And so it isn't this teaching about Jesus loves little children and the sheep and it's a wonderful thing. It's a scalding indictment against Phariseeism. Chapter 11, Pharisees control how people seek faith. The contact with Jesus is forbidden. Social pressure to remove people from the temple community. And then at the end of chapter 11, there's a plot to murder Jesus with a high priest. Chapter 12, the Pharisees are jealous of them following anyone else, anyone else's interpretation. They love commendation from men rather than from God. So for the last six chapters, we have these major, major, major themes of the Pharisees were convinced it was black and white. This is the way to do it. But they were standing on their own merits, their own interpretation, their own good deeds, their own effort. And to let go of that would cost them too much. Strange. We've had 11 chapters in John, 12 chapters. Okay, we're in our 13th chapter now, right? That's chapter 13, is my math right? Okay, 13 chapters in John. And uh, not once has Jesus excoriated the world, has warned us about a particular sin, has warned us about those people or that group, or we got to hate the right things. Not once has he said, your biggest threat to faith is this group out there, or this movement, or this sin, or this strange teaching, or this whatever. They're messed up. They're jacked up, okay? I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not, no, everybody has relative, you know, threat level here. But Jesus not once said, what you really need to avoid is this. But he spends six chapters, and it's building and building, and will end up in his murder, This whole thing of disciples, don't be a Pharisee. They're rowing across the lake. Did you not understand the lesson of the bread? Oh, it's because we didn't bring bread? No, I'm talking about the Pharisees. Did you not understand this lesson? It's because of this? No, I'm talking about the Pharisees. So he doesn't warn us at all about the world, but he warns us about becoming a Pharisee. He doesn't condemn the world, but the one place in the Gospels where he spends the most time condemning, read... Matthew 26, it is brutal, the condemnation on the Pharisees, because they knew more, and they couldn't have done less, and they couldn't have cared less. So why 
when he doesn't condemn the world, when he doesn't warn against the world, when he warns against the Pharisees and he condemns the Pharisees, why is that such a big deal to Christ and why is it being brought out so much in John? And it's simply this. The greatest danger to a follower of Christ is not our own sin, but it's our own righteousness. Let that soak in. The greatest danger to a follower of Christ is not our sin, but our own righteousness. Because our sin, we can never defeat. We can never win. We can never wash it away. We can never make it okay. We can never redouble the effort. Christ took care of that completely. Completely. K.O. It's over. It is done. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Christ took care of that completely. We're learning to live in the aftermath of that reality. We're learning to live in a way we're not accustomed to. We're learning to discover who we really should have been instead. And it's scary and it's liberating. It's terrifying. It's exhilarating. It's, it's weak. It's clumsy. It's a baby giraffe who was just born. And, and it, it's clumsy. But this is life in the spirit where it's not our strength but Christ. We're the earthen vessels. It's the power and the glory of the gospel within so our greatest danger isn't our sin, even for compulsive habits, even for sin strongholds, even for things we just think are so wired. Christ is at work. He has completely defeated everything arrayed against us. But with our righteousness, we can only hold on to one thing. We can hold on to Christ's sacrifice or our own. And the Pharisees held on to their own. Because everything they did, how they worked, their knowledge of scripture, how people saw them, their expectations, their role in society, their control, their influence, the way to make lives around them like them so they didn't have to change, that cost them a lot. And they weren't willing to let that go to say, I did this wrong. I need God. I am not enough. The whole thing would have gone away. So they had painted themselves into a corner just like Judas. I am right. This is the one way to save Israel. This is what we need. It's black and white. The ends justify the means. Because it was, you're holding on to one thing and one thing only. This was the challenge of the Galatian church. They had started out in Christ. They were doing so well. But then people thought, but the real Christians need to do this. And they need to conform to Judaism. They need to do this way and that way and this way. And this is what the... And Paul's going, look, again, guys, just a review here. You hold on to Christ or you hold on to yourself. You can't hold on to both. Which is it going to be? Because if you're holding on to yourself, Christ is of no value to you. And now you need to keep the entire law and you need to be perfect. And guess what? None of us are. So it's all or nothing, literally. Peter was a mess. Peter was ignorant. He didn't know any better, but he kept coming back. He's like that irascible puppy you're trying to, trying to house train. Uh, he keeps coming back, and that's his heart to God. He would mess up, and he'd come back. He'd mess up, and he'd come back. He didn't get it. He was responding out of fear and self-protection, and that's all he could see in the moment. What Judas, Judas was responding out of was a determined, premeditated, well-considered, thought-out plan. And in the end of the day, because of circumstances, Peter panicked, and, and he made a mistake. He sinned. Judas made a sin as well, but the results couldn't have been different because Judas was, not, was holding on to himself. Peter had completely let go of himself, and we see the difference in how this works out. This is the difference between a David and a Saul. 
Saul trusted in his own ability. He was a head taller than everybody. He was more handsome than anyone. He was the man. He was the studliest stud there was. And people said, all the other nations have these awesome kings to go up before and win wars and, and bring glory. Where's us? Where's God? We want a king. We want a king. And so they looked for the studliest, manliest man. And he held on to that. I'm the king. I'm the leader. It's my own strength. He would not wait on God. He would not consult. He did it his way. He ran ahead. It was a half-hearted following of God. As long as God coincided with his plan, he was all in. But as soon as God asked something that didn't coincide, he made a choice. Nope, I'm holding on to me. I'm holding on to me. I'm holding on to me. And guess what happened at the end of Saul's life? That's all he had, holding on to himself. wasn't enough. And this is the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. That... We do something and we feel bad. The Saul kind of sorrow, the Judas kind of sorrow is, I'll do anything to avoid the guilt I'm feeling right now, to avoid the shame I'm feeling right now, to avoid the pain. I'll do anything. I'll say what I have to do. I'll do what I have to do. I just want to avoid it because it's about me and I'm holding on to me and I have to know I'm still good and I can still earn. Godly sorrow is, thank you, Father, that you have forgiven me. I'm so sorry that I've hurt you. What can I do now to avoid this? What could I do now to live differently? What was it that I didn't see in you that I had to meet elsewhere? What did I not have complete in you that I'm still holding on to in myself? Now it's a reveal and, I, and this is killing me. Now I can let it go. That there's a freedom. That I can fall down and still be okay with God and he's going to lift me up and he's going to strengthen me. Who are you to stay before anyone's master, anyone will stand or fall. Stand they will because the Lord is able to. The Lord is faithful. The Lord is desirous. Having loved them to the end, even a Judas who predetermined was going to betray Christ and he knew it. Christ loved to the end. And I think that was part of the foundational blocks in allowing Peter to see, wow. If he could love Judas, knowing Judas was going to do that to him. Maybe I can get over what I did to him. Maybe I don't have to hold on to myself. Broken trying to hold it together or uh, all together apparently for others to see and I can let go and feel the embrace of God in my weakness. The greatest danger to a follower of Christ is not our sin. It is a great danger, but Christ has taken care of that completely. We don't have to worry about that in Christ. But our righteousness See, this is who we've become accustomed to being instead. Our image management, what others think of us, what God thinks of us, his expectations, the could, the would, the should, the ought, how, how, where we feel we're done. And this is where the reality of relationship happens. This is the crucible in which God does his best work. And so the freedom with this is all those expectations, all the coulda, woulda, shoulda, all the guilt, all that we don't have to deal with, we don't have to worry about at all. And in our very weakness, in our craveness, where we are yet stuck, that is God's gracious reveal of saying, yes, yes, absolutely, in a relationship you were saved, but in the practice of that, in the working it out, the reason you're not seeing more flow or life is we're holding on to this rather than letting it go. I pray, God, let me see more of you. Let me love more of you. And this is a practical answer of prayer when I see more of my sin, my justification, my excuses, my righteousness, my presentation, and the motives for doing so. I can get down on myself and say, well, nothing much has changed and beat myself up and redouble the efforts and I'm going to try harder. Or I can say, thank you, Jesus, that you love me this much 
that now you've worked on enough in my life that I can, I can surrender this next bit to you. Help me to walk this out in a way that I see your glory, that I see the better way of doing this, that I see the, that where I've been deceived and I, and I see the bankruptcy of what I've been trying to get and I can see what you've been trying to teach me all along. The same son, you can spell it either way, the same son that uh, hardens the clay, softens the wax. Christ is shed abroad in our hearts. It is a message of love, of forgiveness. It is a message of never being able to measure up and no longer ever having to anymore. It is a message of trust, of surrender, of joy. And yes, it is a, trans, is a transaction of faith in which we initiate, but it is a reality that is worked out And this is where God meets us. And this is his message of love. And this is his message of freedom. And he doesn't want us to feel, I've got to hold on to this, but I've got to hold on to this. And they get withered and atrophied. And like the clay that hardens, it becomes who we are. But he wants our hearts, he wants what we're holding on to, to soften. Where he can best form us back into his image. Again, super easy to talk about. Super easy to work through. But it struck me how much time, going through the gospel this time, how much time John and how much time Jesus spends on this whole thing, six full chapters in a gospel book. And in the absence of all the things that we shrink against and we war against and we we look for. And so I think the simple message is this, and this is where I'm struggling and this is where God is setting me free, that the greatest danger to a Christ follower, not our sin, but our own righteousness. Or as John Wartburg says much more eloquently, the righteous were hurt more by their righteousness than the sinners were by their sin. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that the role of your spirit convicting the world, sin, righteousness, and judgment is not to smack us down, push us away, but a reveal. This is the way it truly is. This is why it feels the way it does. This is why we do what we do. It's a reveal and it makes sense. Help us to run toward that, Lord, rather than away. Help us to let go rather than to justify and double down. And I know the tendencies of my own heart and how much wherewithal I have to even deal. And I just want to get by with what works even with you. But, Lord God, I thank you that you don't settle for half measures. You don't settle for getting by our conformity. You want passion. You want friendship. You want engagement. You want us to be deeply troubled in spirit for the things that deeply trouble your spirit. You want us to rejoice where you rejoice. You want us to go where you go. Love as you love. And so, Father, teach us, as you have been saying over and over again in John, everything I see the Father do, I do. Everything I hear the Father say, I say. That you would give us eyes to see more of what the Father is doing in us, among us, and through us. And you give us more ears to hear what the Father, the Good Shepherd, is saying to us. And we would simply do. Because we get to. Because we're freed. Because this is where we best discover you. Rather than who we are instead. We love you. We thank you, Christ.